This episode of Shaun of the South is brought to you by Case Knives, a tradition of my family dating back to my granddaddy who once said the best cure for idle hands was to build something. So keep your hands sharp with a Case Knife and by Folklore Brewing and Meadry, quite literally the best brew in Alabama. Visit FolkloreBrewingAndMeadry.com. Well, you are listening to Sean of the South, and I'm your host tonight, Sean Dietrich. We are coming to you live via the podcast airwaves and radio waves all over this fine nation, this good-looking group of Cajun young men you see behind me here fixing to play music for you tonight are the Pine Leaf Boys, everybody. Les Elementes
Well, this portion of our show is brought to you by the Tennessee Peanut Company. Are you anxious and feeling tired or unhappy? Do you have frequent bouts of forlorn complacency and existential angst that leaves you exhausted, drained, grumpy, and depleted? Well, I have good news for you. Try the Tennessee Peanut Company's down-home peanuts. For 10 out of 12 doctors recommend Tennessee peanuts to aid in digestion, increase circulation, improve well-being, and actually give you the vigor to get up and go. (laughs) Tennessee Peanut Company brings you an array of roasted peanut flavors to suit all your body's essential peanut needs. Burn your tongue on Nashville's sweet and spicy peanuts or satisfy your sinful needs with double-dipped chocolate peanuts. Enjoy flavors like Cajun Bayou Bites, Honey Roasted, Chipotle, Traditional Salty, Sea Salt and Cracked Pepper. And when you have room, try some classic peanut brittle. Your pancreas will thank you. (laughs) Whatever you do, make sure you satisfy your peanut needs with the Tennessee Peanut Company. Visit TennesseePeanut.com. Now let's have another tune here from the Pine Leaf Boys, everybody. The Pine Leaf Boys.
read you a little bit of our mail, a little bit of our mail sent in to us from listeners all over this fine country who had nothing better to do than to put pen to paper and tell us a little bit about themselves and what they're doing. And Our first letter comes from Bob in Richmond, Virginia. Bob. Dear Sean, I stumbled on your show, and at first I thought it was pretty slow moving. But after a few episodes, it kind of started to grow on me. So thanks for the stories. I wanted to send this letter to, to you to see if it would actually make it onto the part of the show where you read the mail. Because nobody usually pays attention to me because I'm old now and I'm bald. <laughs> nobody pays attention to you when you're bald. Don't worry, Sean. Your turn's coming next. Cheers. Bob. Well, Bob, I, I can't wait. Lynn, Shreveport, Louisiana. Dear Sean, my son was coming home from being overseas in the army. And he told us he wanted his favorite dinner of beef stew. So that's exactly what I made for him. Beef stew. Except my husband had been in our spice cabinet. Now, there's a long story to this, but I'll condense it for you the best I can. You see, my husband had been trying to get rid of ants in our front lawn, all on our sidewalk. And he read somewhere that salt burns them if you pour enough of this salt on the sidewalk. So, he used all the salt that we had in our spice cabinet. And when he refilled the shaker, because my husband is half blind, he accidentally refilled it with domino sugar. Okay, so getting back to my son. When Brad was coming home from being overseas, I spent all day making this beef stew that he used to love growing up. And when we all sat down to eat, he took one bite of it and the look on his face is one I can only describe as sheer disgust. <laughs> He didn't spit it out, he's too polite for that, but he didn't, and he didn't make any remarks either. But when I took a bite, immediately I spit it out because I realized it was the worst tasting soup I had ever had in my entire life. <laughs> Later that night, we went to Pizza Hut. Anyway, thanks for reading my letter, your friend Linda. Well, Linda, if we ever do meet in person and get to spend any time hanging out, Make sure we go to Pizza Hut or McDonald's. <laughs> Pamela Sue, San Diego, California. Dear Sean, our favorite thing to do is to pay someone's propane bill anonymously. I just thought I'd write you and tell you about this because it's actually pretty fun. I go to our propane company and give them a check and I tell them to apply it to somebody or more than one who needs it? And when their company sends out the next statement, they tell the person that someone has paid their balance in full. Individuals have called the company and asked things like, why would somebody do that? Why would somebody pay off my bill? And the answer is, Sean, because it's just so much fun. Kellethine in beautiful Alabama. Dear Sean, I found a delightful story that my mother told me one of the many days we sat and visited her at the assisted living facility where she lived her last years. It's hard to believe she's been gone for almost seven years. On February the 8th, she would have been 100 years old. But anyway, I hope this story brings you a smile because my mother could tell a good story. Years ago, a married couple had lived together off and on for years. And one day, 
She came to his job looking for her husband, and she was fussing and fussing about her husband and all the things that he was doing wrong. And her husband's boss told her to go home and do whatever she ought to do. And he went on to tell her if she looked after her husband and did right, she and her husband could work it out, whatever it was. He was a good man, and she was lucky to have him. That's the truth. So she stood strong, looked straight at his boss, and in a stern voice she said, I would rather walk through hell in kerosene drawers than stay married to that man one more day. And she turned and walked away. <laughs> Thanks for your stories, Kelleth. Well, dear Kelleth Ann, we love you. Thank you for the letter. Reggie in Atchison, Kansas. Dear Sean, my dad used to pay me two bucks per day to work on his farm, my family farm. And they're among the best memories of my life out there, covered in sweat, driving that old truck, learning how to bale hay. I've tried to recapture the fun of farming at this age. I'm 62 now, but I'm just not that young guy anymore, and it's funny how much a man can change over his life. It's funny. I never thought I'd say this, but I'm thinking of selling our family land since it's not being used anymore. My daughters don't want it, and I think it could make someone else happier than me. So I guess what I'm saying to all your listeners is hold on to the memories while you still can. That's my letter. Thanks a lot. Reggie. Dear Reggie, that is good advice. Good advice. Beverly. And she doesn't say exactly where she's from, but, but we know her name's Beverly. <laughs> Dear Sean, I was surprised to hear you mention that in the past you attended Okaloosa Walton Junior College. I myself graduated from Choctahatchee High School in 1964 and then Okaloosa Walton Junior College in 1966. My dad was in the U.S. Air Force and stationed there. We love the Panhandle. Of course, as many of my military brat peers, we all moved on to different places, different colleges, and different universities, and we married and had children of our own and careers, and so on and so forth. But anyway, I do love the small community colleges over the larger university environments. I am so grateful for the time spent at Okaloosa Walton and the personal concern and teaching from our professors. I was active in the student government while there and have a few friendships that have remained all these years. I'm 75 now. While I did take the additional courses at various universities over the years, I never did officially finish my BA. Marriage and children got in the way and lots of travel. I was always embarrassed to say I went to a junior college and not a university, especially when so many people around me had master's degrees and assumed kind of the same thing of me. But I had an awesome career, and I, I found the keys to success for me were, were as follows. Never stop learning. Never stop mentoring. Treat others how you want to be treated. And remember, effort equals results. Oh, and one more. Remember not to burn bridges. Anyway, thanks for bringing back fond memories of yesteryear. Your friend, Beverly. Dear Beverly, as alumni at your alma mater, thank you for the letter. Adam, in Shiloh, Tennessee. Here, Sean, I was interested in this girl in my class a long time ago who was way out of my league. And I was a senior in high school. So like most guys my age back then, I bought her flowers. 
and I sent them to her anonymously. Well, she was obviously very smitten with these flyers, but she assumed that someone else had sent them. And that someone else was my brother, (laughs) who took full advantage of the idea and took full credit for sending them. If you can believe it, they actually went out on a date. I was waiting for my brother when he got home from that date, and we got into a huge fight. Then my brother swore he wouldn't go out with her again, but guess what? He did. (laughs) Well, fast forward 42 years, they've been married for four decades, and I guess you could say I'm to blame for their marriage, but I'm not complaining because I've been married for 39 years to a beautiful woman who is a much better cook than my brother's wife, so I want to say officially, na-na-na-na-na-na-boo-boo. <laughs> Thanks for the show. I hope to hear this on the air. Your pal, Adam. Well, Adam, I'm so glad that you're a good sport, and let that be a lesson for all the young men listening out here to never send flowers or love poems or anything of romantic persuasion anonymously. No, no, no. Put your name on that sucker. That way when the fertilizer hits the fan, everybody knows exactly who is to blame. And that's letters from our listeners. Letters from our listeners. Now let's have another tune here from the Pine Leaf Boys, everybody. The Pine Leaf Boys.
Well, whenever I come to Louisiana, the first thing I think about is the time that I, a very first foray into Louisiana fishing was my cousin when I was here. I was a young man when that happened, very young. In fact, I'll never forget just how beautiful I was. I had gorgeous skin, gorgeous skin. You have good skin when you're young. And that skin, you look at it in the mirror and you realize, man, I could eat dinner off that. <laughs> After the shower, you, you turn around and you look at behind your shoulder at your backside in the mirror and you realize there's no saggage. <laughs> Everything is tight enough to bounce a quarter off of. And then something happens, something happens and you, you look in the mirror one day and you realize that no longer do they call those little spots on your skin freckles like they do for cute little boys and girls. No longer do they really look like freckles. Used to, when I was a boy, I used to look like I had the kinds of freckles that resembled someone who'd sneezed on you after drinking chocolate milk. But now I look at them and I realize the doctor calls them sunspots, or God forbid, liver spots. And the hairline you see before you tonight looks nothing like it used to. The hairline used to begin just about an inch above my eyebrows. And now I fear that eventually, maybe even someday soon, this hairline will begin at the nape of my neck. <laughs> Sometimes under the right light, I can see parts of my scalp shining through my hair and they look like polished aircraft aluminum. Oh, but long ago I went fishing as a young man a beautiful young man in this little tiny John boat, three-seater John boat, with my cousin, one of his suppliers from Texas, uh, from a West Texas company, and me. And we pushed that boat off in the Lake Pontchartrain and got inside. The, my cousin sat in the bow. The Texas man sat in the midship, and I sat in the stern. And we cranked our reels upon that mirror-like lake, and we looked at that beautiful blue Louisiana sky above us. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. Well, the problem with people from Texas, I uh, imagine everybody here knows better than I do because they spend more time around them. Y'all mingle together your states. Is that Texans like to compare things to things found in their home state. This man, the entire time we was fishing, was looking at things in Louisiana, and he was always, he was always drawing contrasts such as the little white fluffy thing that was pouncing and leaping through the golden grass on the shore as we were getting near to the banks. And he said, what is that? What is that? Moving to the grass. My cousin looked, saw this little cotton tail jumping through the grass. He said, that's a cotton tail rabbit. Ain't you seen one of those in Texas? The man reared up. He said, of course I have. We got plenty of cotton tail rabbits in Texas, but in Texas they're about the size of Shetland ponies. Oh, brother. Right after we caught our limit, we were getting closer to shore, and there was a man who was fixing to get his boat into the lake, and in the boat was a black and tan coonhound with long ears and droopy jowls and eyes that were sadder than Jimmy Swaggart's. <laughs> and the man from Texas looked at that animal. He said, excuse me, sir, what is that? And the man was loading his fishing rods. He said, what, this? This is my dog. This is a black and tan coonhound. Ain't you never seen one of those before? The man said, of course I have. I'm from Texas. 
But in Texas, we've got black and tan coon hounds about the size of elephants. <laughs> well, when we got up to the truck, we were unloading our fish. We caught our limit. We had caught at 1.5 redfish about the size of a grown man's thumbnail. And as we were getting the boat all situated, there was a loggerhead turtle, roughly the size and shape of a tractor tire, wandering down the banks of Pontchartrain into the water. And the man from Texas looked at that turtle. He said, what is that? And my cousin looked, and he said, that's a tick. <laughs> Welcome to Louisiana. I grew up around the Choctahatchee Bay. That is a bay that is 127 square miles of brackish water. And we have things in there that are older than time itself. We have the sturgeon, which is a prehistoric animal, a hangover from a, the Mesozoic era. And they, they flop around in the very bottom of our Choctahatchee Bay because our bay is relatively quiet compared to Lake Pontchartrain. Lake Pontchartrain is 629 square miles of, of water. It's, it's like being on a continent. I remember seeing this big water another time in my life when I was also a young man. See, my mother had gotten very, very sick, very sick, shortly after my sister and I had moved out and kind of started our own lives. She was going to doctors a lot, and doctors, doctors are interesting a lot. They're... they're anxious to use whatever equipment they have because they're like kids with a train model set. It doesn't matter why you go to the doctor's office, including to read the gas meter, you're going to get a shot. <laughs> and so these doctors were giving my mother shots and they were confused over what was ill in her. And it turned out to be an autoimmune condition that nobody could really, nobody could really put their thumb on. And so my aunt, who is a a warrior drove down from Atlanta, Georgia and demanded that my mother was going to come live with her. They were going to let go of my mother's rental house and my mother was going to move to Atlanta. That meant she would have been six hours away from us, which was difficult, but we knew it had to happen. And I'll never forget watching my aunt's Cadillac DeVille, navy blue, pull into my mother's driveway as the last of my mother's belongings were being moved out by the moving company. And my mother, who had lost 40 pounds from being ill, was sitting on the porch watching that blue Cadillac wheel into the drive, and I was standing there as my mother was being loaded into the car with my aunt, looking at the hoot ornament on my aunt's car. She's had the same hoot ornament since I was a little boy, and it's a naked woman who is looking at you with a look that says, you shouldn't be looking at me, you're a Baptist. And I watched my mother light and ravaged from the effects of an autoimmune disease crawl into that Cadillac, and she reached her, her arm out the window as that car drove away, and I watched the taillights wink out into the distance, and I stood behind and realized that my mother, the doctors had said, was dying. I went up to Atlanta to visit her several times, and she had been going back and forth to Emory University, where the men were doing all sorts of tests, and, and they were running all sorts of labs on her, and nobody could figure it out. My mother had lost 60 pounds. She looked like a little pinky finger with feet. And I saw her there in the driveway one night when I was coming 
made an all-out drive to Atlanta. She was standing in the driveway. My headlights hit her, and she looked so small. She was wearing a nightgown like a skeleton with inset eyeballs. And I jumped out of my truck, and we hugged in the headlights. And the first thing she said was, you look hungry. Let me go in and make you some breakfast. I said, Mama, you ain't cooking for me. Look at you. Well, not long after that, after I left and had pretty much realized that my mother was not going to make it, I got a phone call from my aunt and my uncle and said, the Emory University doctors have found what is wrong with your mother. It's called Stephen Johnson syndrome. It's, a, it's an autoimmune condition that pokes blueberry-sized holes into your muscles, and they were crawling upward toward her heart. There's a treatment out there that they've been trying on your mother, and it worked. And she's going to live. She's going to make a full recovery. Well, that was perhaps the best news I had ever heard in my entire life. And you're never prepared for what you're going to do when you hear the best news of your entire life. And my mother called me after she was starting to get better, and she said, I need a place to live. Well, this was not a particular problem I was equipped to deal with. I had never been very skilled at finding lodging and housing opportunities. My wife and I at the time lived in an apartment complex that was just next to a Waffle House and wedged between John's House of Tattoos and a Chick-fil-A. We had a maintenance man who rode around on a dilapidated diesel golf cart with more tattoos on his body than the children's illustrated coloring book. We had people who lived beneath us who had fleas with their dogs and the fleas crawled upward through the walls and got into our house and they found the guy in my apartment with the most hair, which happened to be, surprise, yours truly. (laughs) And in order to get this treated, I went to my doctor and he said, I really don't know what to do for you, but I'll write your recommendation, a referral. And he referred me to the local veterinarian. (laughs) Which is why I still break out into cold sweats whenever a cat crosses the road. (laughs) So I wasn't really qualified to pick a place for my mother to live. And I, furthermore, didn't have any money, and neither did she. Being sick will make a person broke. My mother was absolutely broke. She'd lost everything, everything from being sick for those years. And I didn't have a whole lot of money myself. In fact, we were the kind of people who ate hamburger helper without the hamburger, and sometimes without the helper. So I got on the Craigslist, and I started looking around every night, deep into the night, for ambulatory mansions, otherwise known as campers. Now, I myself was reared in places like this. Some of my homes in my life have had more mileage on the wheelbase than my truck. (laughs) I do not feel comfortable living in a place that does not need cinder blocks to keep it steady and level or without axles beneath the back bedroom. Well, most of the camper trailers in today's world have really come up. They have a lot of fancy high-tech amenities, and this jacks the price way into the stratosphere. It was hard to find anything in my price range, but I finally found something. It came on, and I knew I had to act quick if I wanted to get this thing taken care of. It said, 28-foot FEMA trailer with good tires and working toilet. 
Well, certainly not every day you find a FEMA trailer with a working toilet. Well, I knew something needed to be done very, very quickly because my mother was leaving Atlanta that week, bound for the Panhandle of Florida. And she had no place to stay unless, of course, she stayed in our little, little place and took the very real risk of getting fleas. <laughs> so I packed a short overnight bag. I threw it into my truck. I got everything I had out of savings, and I told my wife, I said, I'm going. I'm going to New Orleans. I drove all night long in my little truck, listening to music, the music of my childhood on the old country radio station, music like Willie Nelson, Loretta Lynn, George and Tammy, and Conway Twitty, which always reminds me of my mother. Conway Twitty was special because he was pretty much outlawed in the fundamentalist women's groups of my mother's youth. And I can remember my mother pulling up to Bible study with Conway Twitty blaring out her blazer window, and she turned it way down when she saw Sister Luann coming out of the, out of the fellowship hall because the song was, There's a Tiger in Them Tight-Fitting Jeans. <laughs> my mother loved that song. My mother... Only has cried two times in her life. Once when a bee flew into her ear canal and stung her in the ear hole, out by the woodpile. And the next time was when Conway Twitty died. Oh, yes. So I listened to this song by Conway Twitty. As I was driving from Florida, loping across the western panhandle and into the, the Gulf regions of Alabama and across the bottom of Mississippi and finally into Louisiana, getting closer to New Orleans where that trailer was located. Finally, I arrived at this man's house. I was low on sleep. I was hungry, and I saw it sitting there in the distance. It was this white FEMA trailer, a rectangular white obelisk on its side with tires that were covered in green film, and the siding, the white siding was covered in moss and a kind of orange funk that looked like rotted pine straw left over from the Herbert Hoover administration. And it was a little bit lopsided. And one of the windows in back was broken and covered with duct tape. I crawled out of my car and there was a man sitting on a porch nearby and he was letting his feet dangle off the porch. And, and I noticed that there was a gun in his front waistband. He jumped off the porch. He came up to me. He said, what in the heck do you want? I said, sir, I'm here to look at the trailer. We, we talked on the phone. I'm here to look at that, that female trailer. He said, oh, man, I'm glad to have you. Yes, of course. Come on, come on. He called back. He said, Lucius, come on here. Help me, help me. Lucius was a big old man. He was six foot eight with broad shoulders about the size of a GE appliance. He had close cropped hair and a voice like a tuba. He said, yeah, Daddy. What? He said, help me get this man into the trailer. Help me get this man into the trailer. And I looked around. I thought, what? Into the trailer? And I saw the door to the trailer. It was eight feet off the ground, and there was no step to get in. He said, don't worry. Lucius is strong. He'll lift you. He won't hurt you. And I said, no, really. I, I, don't, I can look from the outside before I had even said anything. Whoop! I was up into the trailer. 
Next thing I knew, I was walking on a plywood floor that seemed to sag and droop so that when you walked across it, you felt an awful lot like Jesus stepping out of the boat under the stormy seas. <laughs> there was a hole back there near the kitchen where I could see daylight through it, and it looked like a little warren of jackrabbits had made their life underneath this kitchen. I looked around and I saw mouse traps, which had been freshly baited with fresh peanut butter. I said, you have any, any rats or mice? He said, not no more. <laughs> I said, well, let me see uh, this working toilet. So the man led me back to the back room where the toilet was, and I squatted down and looked at it. And it was a real porcelain toilet, the real kind of porcelain toilet you get in the rich people get. I don't know where he laid hold of this toilet, but this sucker was fancy. He said, you got to see it flush. And so he leaned down, me and Lucius, and we looked into the bowl of that beautiful porcelain throne and watched the water swirl clockwise around the bowl. And I said, I'll take it. <laughs> I got into my truck. I hooked up the brake lights. And as I was driving along the road, I crossed over the Lake Pontchartrain Bridge. This bridge is the longest land bridge in North America, the longest land bridge in the world. There's a part in the middle of this bridge, about eight miles in, where you cannot see land before or behind you. This bridge amazingly only took 14 months to construct. Figure that out. When Florida Department of Transportation has been working on the same three-mile stretch of highway near my house for at least 19 years. <laughs> As I was driving, I felt really good. There was good music playing on the radio, and I was smiling, and I was eating peanuts, and I looked behind me in the rearview mirror, and it was at this exact moment that I felt something loud pop, and I started to grip my wheel, and I started to muscle it to the left, and I realized I'm on a Lake Pontchartrain Bridge. There's no getting off this. And so I hit the gas and I kept going, hoping that the end of the bridge was in sight, but it wasn't. And I heard another pop and I looked into my side mirror and I saw the door, the front door of that FEMA trailer flapping in the wind like a dangling chad. And that thing flew off the, off the FEMA trailer and into the highway. I saw it somersault across the lanes of traffic and finally over the side of the bridge and into Lake Pontchartrain forever. And I did what any decent motorist would do in such a situation. I just kept on driving. <laughs> when I got to Mississippi, across the Mississippi State Line, I pulled over and I saw a tire that was so mangled and the rim was so destroyed from the miles I had driven on it that I sat beside that tire and I began to weep. I didn't know what I was gonna do. I didn't have a phone. I didn't have a way of getting in touch with anybody. As the sun began to lower, I saw a red and blue light bar in the distance approaching me. In a few minutes, a man leapt out wearing a county uniform. He put me into the back of his cruiser he said, I'm sorry, you have to ride in the back. That's just how it goes. Watch your head, please. <laughs> and we drove into this little tiny town, 
And we found this little tiny tire shop where there was a man sitting in the back with a red and white name tag on his chest that was monosyllabic, such as Earl or Dan or Jim or Ron. And he had grease smudges on his face and dirty fingernails. He said, what kind of FEMA trailer you got? I told him, I told him what I knew about it. He said, "Uh uh-huh, I'll have to look at it. We drove back out to that FEMA trailer. He fit a brand new tire and a brand new rim on that trailer for free. And then he fit another brand new tire and another brand new rim on the other side for free. And then I was on the road again, waving goodbye to these two beautiful strangers who had helped me. We set my mother's trailer up beneath the pines. We gave her a little tomato garden out back. My mother's a voracious tomato gardener. She plants her tomatoes every year. She does a good job with them. They come out about the size of regulation volleyballs. We made her flower beds out of old recycled tires to go with the theme. And my mother comes from a long line of tomato gardeners, long line of, of, she knows all the tricks of the trade for homemade herbicides. She sprays her tomatoes to prevent the squirrels from attacking them with a fine blend of red man chewing tobacco and water put into a mister and she mists the red man chewing tobacco and the water onto the tomatoes. If you go to her house late in the afternoon, you can look high up into the branches and you can see the squirrels reclining in the trees spitting. After we got my mother's trailer set up with a brand new staircase built going into the door, we all went over to christen it one afternoon. My wife, my sister and I, my brother-in-law, a few of her friends. We ate food out on a picnic table and my mother was eating without any digestive issues and her body looked so whole and healthy. My mother said, I don't think I brought the mayonnaise out. Go in, go in and get me some mayonnaise, Sean. And I trotted up that little staircase I'd built into the FEMA trailer and I walked inside and I looked at all the work I'd done inside I'd rebuilt the floor so that it was sturdy we'd given her a brand new kitchen there was a new window there was a new AC unit my mother had done her touches on it too she had made curtains from recycled lace from the thrift store she'd made throw pillows from recycled material that she'd bought from the material outlet and in the back bedroom, I just poked my head in. There was a little queen-size bed with a little comforter slung across it. On that nightstand beside her bed were photographs framed. And I picked them up one by one, and I looked at them. And there was the photograph of me when I was five years old wearing my first cowboy hat. The brim came down to the bridge of my nose, and I was wearing a Richard Petty NASCAR shirt. And there was the picture of me when I was a young man who was a little bit chubby. I went to a period where I loved Swiss cake rolls and looked like I could have been the spokesperson for Pillsbury. <laughs> and I picked up a remaining photograph that was sitting there on the edge of the table. It was a photograph from the day of my wedding. One that the photographer had suggested we take with just the groom's family. And in the photograph is a tall young man a tall young man who has hair that looks like a tarnished penny and buckshot freckles. He has no idea the rest of his life is ahead of him. And hooking arms with him is this little woman, five foot one, and shrinking every year. 
She was holding a little bouquet and she was wearing a skirt suit and she was looking up in his eyes with this wonderful look that said, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen or whether or not we'll survive it. But we can get through it as long as we're together. I came trotting back outside with that jar of mayonnaise I placed it on the table. I sat down next to everybody, and my mom said, well, what'd you think? It's the first time you've seen the inside since I had it decorated. I said, it's nice. It's real nice. She said, it is nice, isn't it? I said, oh, yeah. She said, I, I like it. I feel, I feel like it's home. Thank you. And I thought of all the years my mother, my single mom, struggled to raise us and to teach us how to be grateful and how to be happy in the midst of horrible circumstances. And I touched her hand and I said, no, mama, thank you. And my wife looked at me, sitting next to me with those big eyes she has. And she said, Sean, hold real still. There's a flea on your neck. Hey, thank you very much for having me. It's been a wonderful pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Sean of the South. I've been your host tonight, Sean Dietrich, and man, it has been a bona fide privilege coming to you live via the podcast, Airwaves, and Radio Waves, like we always do. This episode was brought to you by Case Knives, a tradition of my family dating back to my granddaddy, who once said the best cure for idle hands was to build something. So keep your hands sharp with a Case Knife. And by Folklore Brewing and Meadry, quite literally, the best brew in Alabama. Visit Folklore Brewing and Meadry. That music you heard behind me tonight was the Pine Leaf Boys, Louisiana's finest four-time Grammy-nominated, world-renowned Pine Leaf Boys. They have made a name for themselves, presenting their own imitable brand of Louisiana music with a youthful exuberance and a true traditional feel. Hailing from southwest Louisiana, the Pine Leaf Boys are known for their wild shows and thoughtful arrangements. They've been described by the New York Times as the link that connects the young and the old generations. Do yourself a kindness and visit pineleafboys.com and download their music today. You will not regret it. To find out anything more about what I do, you can visit seanofthesouthshow.com and there you can find archived episodes dating back to our first episode all the way to this episode, which you just heard, although I don't know why, you must have a terrible taste in podcasts. I'm hungry there. Hope you take the time to drop me a line to me about your birthday announcements, what limitations of potluck socials, and I'll do my best to read that sort of stuff over the air for my friends, because I love to do that sort of stuff for my friends. And speaking of friends, friends, today could be the day that the best thing in your life happens to you. You never know. Adios. Adios.